Hello, Edgar. Hello, Gregoire. How are you doing? Doing okay. How are you? As well as one can be right now. Yeah, it makes us ponder what the word okay means. It does indeed. <laughs> For all those who will listen to this podcast in 10 years and wonder what we're talking about, this is August 2020, mm -hmm. and we are still in the middle of a pandemic. We thought we were in the middle of the pandemic three months ago. Yes, it's amazing how fantasies work. Yes, yeah, especially <laughs> when you have no idea what's going on. It's difficult to stand in the uncertainty of what's going on here, how long this will take. We have no clue. Today we are going to answer some questions asked by some of our listeners. And we will go on with some more thoughts about the COVID situation. If you want to leave a comment, please send us an email to discussion on psychoanalysis at pm.me or subscribe to the Facebook group discussion on psychoanalysis and feel free to share your thoughts on whatever we say. Feel free to criticize. Mm -hmm. We are reading and listening. Yeah. My name is Gregor Pierre. And this is Edgar Danielson. Welcome to discussions on psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis. Let's start with, let's thank a city. And today we want to thank a city in South Korea called Dongchak. Thank you. We really appreciate having people listening from everywhere in the world. We are especially touched by um, cities where very few people are listening to us, mm -hmm. which indicates to us that we are reaching out much further than we first thought we would. Yes, indeed. So thank you to all those in the audience who are interested in psychoanalysis or what psychoanalysis has to offer to the world through our discussions. I wanted to also give a special thank to people who decided to join the discussions on psychoanalysis forum on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Today, as we are recording, we have 2,200 members. I look at every request individually. I think I approved all of them besides one that seemed to be obviously a bot. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming there must be bots within the 2,200 members, but it is very moving for us to see all those people who ask to be a member of this group and um, all those faces from everywhere in the world well thank you indeed thank you probably we don't know many of those personally but it's quite fascinating to see all the places where people are reaching out to discussions on psychoanalysis also i wanted to say that we don't moderate the forum 
So we do not necessarily agree with everything people put on it, but just like our intention is with the podcast, we created it so that it's a place for people to discuss about psychoanalysis. So you may see some posts and interactions the administrators make with the people who are posting. We may ask things like, what do you mean by this? Or can you tell me more? It's a way to appreciate what people are posting and to let them know that we are open to hear other trends of psychotherapy, not necessarily psychoanalysis. It's what's happening right now. Don't you think, Gregoire? I agree with you. And as you're saying, I want to emphasize that when we are asking, what do you think? What do you mean by that? Or questions um, like that, we really mean it. Mm -hmm. It's quite encouraging to see that all around the world, people are connecting in different ways to provide mental health services. Some of those who provide mental health services are not necessarily psychoanalysts, but you know, the forum is open to everybody who is interested in the psyche of and how we interact with the world and with ourselves. So we have a few questions for this follow-up podcast. I'm going to read the first one. Mm -hmm. On the topic of taking notes, do we bring it up or no during our first session? What if a patient wants to access our notes? Which language do we use to write our notes? Yes. And what about analysts who bring their pets to the office? Should it be addressed in the first session? Okay, let's take one at a time. Mm -hmm. The topic of taking notes. Do we bring it up or no, Edgar? I don't. The first consultation, the first session, the person will notice that I don't have a pad, I don't have a pen, I'm just having a conversation with them. Up to this moment, no one has raised or noticed that. No one? No one. Not in the first session. Okay. There have been some people after the first session who have asked, if I take notes, and when do I take notes, and why do I take notes? And of course, when I receive the question, it's also thinking about the fantasy. What is there in the fantasy when the person is asking? And there are also some realities beyond the fantasy. For example, do health insurance companies require notes or not? But it's different from a fantasy of the patient. There can be a fantasy associated with this question. Yeah. Insurance companies, do they require you to write notes? They don't ask me for notes. They ask me for a diagnosis. And yeah. that I discuss on the first consultation. If the patient wants to use their health insurance benefits, the ethical standard is to let the patient note that confidentiality is breached when I tell the health insurance that my diagnosis of the patient is whatever the diagnosis title or label is, in that moment it's breached. But I tell the patients that that will happen. Yeah. Now, what about you, Gregoire? Do you take notes? How does it go? At first, when we were still working at TRCC, so mm -hmm. the clinical branch of NPAP, I had a few patients who, from the get-go in the first session, noticed that I wasn't writing anything. Mm -hmm. And they asked what it was about. And I did answer depending on what I felt from the patient, but I remember that I answered mostly either very down to earth, mm -hmm. like, well, no, I don't take notes because it prevents me from being very focused with you. 
Yes. Pointing out also usually when I said that, that it's me and that I have colleagues who actually do need to take notes. Mm -hmm. I could also react to it uh, in terms of fantasies right away. And my inch used to be that people were afraid that I wasn't interested in them. Yes. Because you were not writing notes. I would address that right away. It usually helps patients feel more at ease with me. Mm -hmm. When in some ways, kind of magically, when you're able to verbalize an unspeakable thought that they are ashamed of, it lifts something. Like it really helps the connection. I would agree with that. Some patients ask me if I write notes after session and I say yes. With some of them, I realize that there's the fantasy or concern is that I'm writing about them. And somehow it's something that is hidden from them. Mm -hmm. And in the process, what I try to express is that the notes are for me to process what has been going on in therapy. It's not to make a recording of the session. I had some people asking me if I record the sessions. Yes. Uh -huh. Imagine I record all my patients. What am I going to do? <laughs> listen to eight hours of therapy every day but you know there were some uh, mental health practitioners who would record everything for my guests it that uh, it was connected more to liability it was about their fears oh and not about the praxis not about the experience in the room with the patient that's a good point in that sense that's why when people have asked me about recording even by notes i think the underlying concern is that I'm somehow making myself safe from them. Mm -hmm. Of course, what I have shared is that what I write is not a recording. It's mostly my understanding of what happened in the session, which is different. Yeah. Just to finish answering the first question, mm -hmm. just like you, I don't bring it up. Mm -hmm. At first I did, after I had a certain number of patients asking me about whether or not I was taking notes during the first year or two I was practicing in New York, then I eventually decided to bring it up myself. And now I completely stopped. Mm -hmm. I haven't had anyone in the first session, second or third or anything like that in the consultation period, one to three sessions. No one has asked me about that. Later on, a couple, a few, yeah. A handful. Many patients pointed out how they were surprised that I would remember what they say. Mm -hmm. And so they asked me if I read my session notes before and how could I remember mm -hmm. this person and that. I don't. And I told them that the notes I take are usually, as you're saying, it's just for me to process something. It's actually not at all a summary of the session. Mm, no. Mm -hmm. And also, I remember them because I'm listening to them. Yes. I don't remember them, but once you're in session, all of a sudden, everything comes back. That's the beauty of the process, I think. I've had some patients being surprised that I remember as if I, I don't know, if <laughs> I have a super memory which is not necessarily true. I forgot what I had for breakfast this morning, but that's different. So, yeah, that's bad, Edgar. That's bad. And, <laughs> let's not go there. But about my patients, when I am immersed in listening, hovering over what they are saying, it's amazing how things come back to me. Yeah. Second part of the question, what if a patient wants to access our notes? I'm going to answer first. None of my patients ask me, so I don't know. We are in the termination phase of the treatment. The person wanted to read my notes. That was at the end of a session. I said, of course, let's talk more about this next time. And then it fizzled out. The patient never showed up. My plan B was, you know, if this comes down to requesting 
my notes, I have heard of other analysts saying, you know, well, ask, you know, ask your attorney to contact me or something like that. If we are doing psychoanalysis, we should not lose that, the ground of our psychoanalytic mind, which means what is behind the request? What is there that the patient is concerned about, afraid of? What is the patient requesting for me? It's not the notes. It's something else. Yeah. I would put that in the context of let's talk about it and let's see uh, what, what is behind the request. I wouldn't use those words. I would say something more about the, you know, I want to understand where your request, your demand, your... You want to understand what's going on. I want to understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, my hunch in this, with this specific patient is that the patient wanted to hold on to something that was mine because the patient was moving elsewhere. Unfortunately, we were not able to discuss that. That was my hunch. Mm -hmm. I don't know for sure. Listening to you, I'm also wondering how there might be a, for some people a fantasy that our notes are the truth. Yes. As if they would contain what we understand of them that we might hide from them, mm -hmm. that we are writing their truth and mm -hmm. that maybe if they were to read that, they would have access to all this knowledge that we are keeping from them. Yeah. And in that sense, I am fundamentally against providing notes to patients, uh, except if required by law, of mm -hmm. course. But in terms of clinical frame, I think it would be a strong mistake to do so because of the fantasy around the value of our notes. Mm -hmm. I think as a professional, I can see that my notes are useful to me when I um, process things. Sometimes I'm taking notes and I'm like, oh yeah, okay, that's maybe what he or she meant. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I can go a little further in my work with one person or another. But that's all it is to me. As you're saying that, it dawns on me that supervision is more helpful than notes if we're processing. Third part of this question, what language do we use to write our notes? Mostly English, if my patients are English-speaking. If the patient is Spanish-speaking, I would write notes in Spanish. It depends. Uh, I'm not sure what drives me to write in one language or the other. I have a hunch. My whole training as an analyst has been in English. Mm. And even though I'm a Spanish-speaking person and I could do and I have done analysis in Spanish, both my own and other patients, when I am talking to people who are more experienced, if they speak Spanish, I find myself speaking in English. Oh, really? Yep. Of course, everything is multi-layered and overly determined. What about you? Do you write in, in English? I was going to say in Spanish, but no. In English or French? I do write only in French. I, it happens that I write some expressions, some words, some mm -hmm. uh, sentences in English because a patient said something in such a way that uh, it's impossible to translate or mm -hmm. the actual wording or the actual grammatical structure of English makes more sense, clinically speaking. Yes. But otherwise, no, everything's in French. Yeah. And most of our training was in France. 
Yeah. I also assume that you probably were in contact with English at a much younger age and more intensely than I was. True. English was just learned in school and you could see some movies maybe in mm -hmm. English, but French was really the only language I used uh, growing up. Yeah. It's much easier for me to think and speak in French. What about analysts who bring their pets to the office? Any idea, Edgar? Do you bring your pets to the office? <laughs> right now, they are dead, so I don't bring their ghosts to... to... Oh, I'm sure you do, actually. <laughs> If there's one thing we all bring. Yeah, of course, we all bring our ghosts into the room. When they were alive, I would not bring them to the room. I've heard of therapists who do that. I'm not sure what does that mean for them. <laughs> I tend to be more on the classical side of the spectrum in terms of psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. And the frame for me is quite important. And things like a pet or even eating or drinking in the room, they may become resistance to the treatment. Not necessarily. You eating or you're drinking? I don't drink. You don't drink water? No, I never do. You don't drink water during a session? No, I don't. What? Yeah. You're never thirsty? I drink when the session has ended. Oh, man, you have so much control. <laughs> <laughs> For those who are listening carefully, I'm implying that I do drink. <laughs> I don't drink so, alcohol, though. Uh... I, I do drink water, and sometimes I even drink tea because I'm wild. You do? Oh, yeah. Okay. Now, I don't tell my patients not to drink. I don't tell my patients. I don't recall anyone eating in the room. But at some points during the treatment, I realized that drinking has become a way to decrease the anxiety. I ponder out loud with a patient. What's going on? And I think one of the most funniest thing is that a patient said, well, probably next time I will bring the whole cooler from the waiting area into the room. Okay, okay, so that's someone who's drinking a lot. Yeah, the patient realized that every time there was a spike in their anxiety, they would take a sip. Okay. And another sip, and I would let that go mm -hmm. until I realized you cannot be drinking so much. <laughs> yeah, it's not about being thirsty. <laughs> it's not about being thirsty. No, I don't know why people bring pets. It's a different kind of therapy. First, you have to practice where you live because i'm assuming you won't travel with your pet to your office if it's outside your apartment oh they do oh, oh yeah if it's a cat it's easy if it's a cat <laughs> you want to bring a cat outside yeah. are office? you a torturer yeah. i don't know Gregoire. i don't do the that cats alone i don't know that my pets used to be home i don't bring them to the office now what if a patient brings a pet that's a different story Mm -hmm. Maybe if you work with kids and you have a very nice and patient pet that could be useful mm -hmm. with adults, should it be addressed? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. And what about the patients who are allergic? Again, anything that happens within the bounds of the therapeutic room is grist for the meal, as one of my supervisors would say, grist for the meal. Mm -hmm. Everything can and perhaps should be analyzed.
So we have another question that will actually uh, be a good transition with the main topic of this podcast, which would be uh, obviously under COVID. The question is, how do analysts deal with their own mortality, this pandemic or any other threat to the analyst's life? How does that affect patients? Mm. I don't know how people do in general. You have to think about that, I think, in practical terms first, meaning if something happens to you, who is going to contact your patients to inform them that past. And also, I think if we take our mortality seriously, which I think we should, but it's not easy, it's humbling and also energizing to keep in mind that you were born dust and you will end dust. Mm -hmm. But you can achieve a lot within your life. You can help people. Mm -hmm. There will be an end to it. Yeah, it doesn't mean I don't waste my time from time to time, but um, the time we have is the time we have. And so if we want to do a work of, of as good quality as we can, I think uh, to take into consideration our own mortality is kind of a depressing, but still a strong incentive. I would say that how an analyst deals with their mortality is similar to how we deal with other life experiences. What I mean is that analysis is a profession where we go through our own analysis and therefore we are confronted with our own mortality in our own analysis. Some people do that. I have. In terms of how I deal with the threat, the increased threat that we experience nowadays in the times of COVID, that adds a different layer to me because my patients have been quarantined. Some of them have been sick. Some of them have lost friends and family members to COVID. There is a moment in my own experience with them when they have asked if I am afraid of dying or if something has happened to me or if I have been infected. And I made a decision to be open about it with my patient when they ask, because in this case, the threat is not only in the inner world of the patient. It's not only there. The threat is an external reality that impinge on us, that is threatening all of us. So that's completely different. So when, in this case, I have decided that when a patient asks directly, I will answer directly about my own processing of death and fear and about what would I do if I die. And when they ask directly, I have told them who is going to be in charge of letting them know that something happened to me so that they will not be just left in the air without knowing what happened. Yeah. Yeah, the pandemic is certainly um, an external event that we can't just work on as a fantasy. Yeah. We certainly need to work through all the fantasy layers around it and around how uh, things could happen to each of us. Mm -hmm. But we can't extract ourselves from that world. No. And in this case, I think the rule of neutrality takes a different meaning. What does it mean to be neutral in the reality of a pandemic that is an external threat and not a neurotic experience? experience two things first ford was not always right it's not because he said something that we have to obey yeah so first (laughs) and second uh even if i still think that neutrality is i think his idea i think was good that's not exactly the term right it's not just being neutral like land screen yeah 
what he meant is you don't impose your idea on the patient. Correct. It's like an engaging neutrality. Mm -hmm. So when your patient is worried and everybody's afraid of this pandemic, what are you going to say? No, I'm not afraid. No, it doesn't touch me. No, I'm invincible. Well, that's a fantasy that some patients may have or we may have that it won't touch us. That's a fantasy indeed. So if a patient tells me and the affect is terribly sad, you name it, my cousin died of COVID. In the midst of that expression and the patient is sad, most people would say, you know, tell me a little bit more about <laughs> No, I won't say that. I won't ask, tell me a little bit more about that. No, the patient is crying. The patient is sad. We have time to explore what's behind those tears and the sadness. But in the moment, the patient is probably somehow pondering if we can stand in the same ground as they are. And I had my own experience with my own analyst. Someone died. And I thought before the session, I thought if, if my analyst comes with the, tell me a little bit more about your, Here's my fist <laughs> on your, your sadness. Face. <laughs> <laughs> But the, my analyst said, I'm very sorry for your loss. And that made a huge difference. And then we talked about the sadness and the tears and all of that. But one thing at a time. We, we need to begin with the human experience. We need to respect our patients and we need to respect their experience. Yes. Uh, our function as analysts is not to be a, just a machine to analyze, deconstruct, etc. A lot of our work is to actually create a, a feeling of continuity in the care, mm -hmm. continuity in our connection with them, even if, of course, there are ups and downs and sometimes uh, we have to heal and we have to fix and we have to work on the connection. Situations like the pandemic, are, as, as we mentioned in the last follow-up podcast on that, are a um, situation where the traumatic, ex extreme uh, social uh, situations or even economic situations, we need to acknowledge our, our shared humanity. And, and then when the frame is safe again, Uh, and mm -hmm. in some ways uh, it started to be detoxified, mm -hmm. you can start analyzing, like, mm -hmm. what did it mean to you? How, how did you feel then? What are your fantasies about that? Yeah. How do we deal with our own mortality? I think we try to answer that question. And how does that affect patients? Well, that depends on the patients. Some patients are extremely anxious that we might be fragile. Some patients are actually very happy that we acknowledge and we embrace our fragility. Each therapist is going to have to be sensitive to each patient and mm -hmm. how to address that. That's my yeah. sense. Yeah. I remember the words by Theodore Reich and he said that no one can sit behind the couch unless that person has stood up for life before. The metaphor is, I think it's beautiful. He says, well, you have to stand for life. You have to go through life before you are able to understand someone else's passage through life. Yeah. So now let's talk about the COVID situation. What's your professional situation today, Edgar? Uh, at this point, I continue to see patients, but all the sessions are held remotely. Mm -hmm. So I'm seeing most of them using a video conference platform. And you're still practicing from your home? I am practicing from my home office. Yes, I haven't been to my office in New York City since middle March. So it's been already almost six months. What about you? What's your situation right now in terms of your private practice? 
Well, I guess it's uh, just like you in some ways is very similar to how it was when we recorded the last podcast on the COVID situation. Mm-hmm. Practicing from home, I went once to get some uh, items. It was quite a strange experience to be there. In what sense? The last day I went there was March 13th. Mm-hmm. And I remember it was a Friday and I remember I had thought that I would still go on the following Monday and Tuesday, Uh but I never did. Yes. Welcome to the club of those who thought that we were coming back quickly. You come back and there's this feeling that time stopped. Mm, Yes. Your office is as it was and it was unprepared to your departure. It's not neat. Mm -mm. I have some open boxes. Mm -hmm. I had some papers on the desk. It was like I would leave something that I would go back a few days later. Not two months after March. In my case, I left my orchid in the windowsill. Of course, I didn't think of that. And now in hindsight, I realized that I was in total denial, that I would be back in a few days, at the most, perhaps one week. And then, of course, the the poor thing died. Yeah. I took my bamboo with me. Yeah. So they survived. (laughs) Yeah. They actually grew. I think the bamboo is happier here. I can see them. Yeah. No, no, it's happier in in the apartment than in the office. About the professional situation, I think, as I said last time, some patients left. I only had one patient who started working with me after the pandemic started. Yes. But that's it. I was expecting more people to contact me, but it was really not the case. What about you? In my case, the number of patients increased dramatically. Now, I think it's connected to two different situations. One is that most of my patients, as you know, are in network with, Mm -hmm. and then it was easier for them to visit my office, quote unquote, because now it's a remote office. What has happened is that now I have more patients, those who were with me before the pandemic, some of them increased from two sessions a week to three times a week. Some of them have mentioned they could not do that before because of, you know, you have to get on the subway, you have to commute, this and that. So that has increased my, my practice to, to a level that surprised me, really. I'm quite surprised. And people came to see you because of COVID? No, they don't express that the reason they decided to start therapy is because of COVID. But they offer is the same presenting problems that I had seen before. Mm-hmm. I'm having problems in my relationships. I would like to explore more of why I'm feeling depressed or I'm anxious. But none of those presenting problems were directly connected to COVID. I see. I thought that was intriguing. And I think part of something that has shifted in the way I work with my patients is that now the pandemic is at the forefront in my mind. And therefore, I want to explore what is hidden, why the pandemic is not showing up in some of my patients, meaning there are no concerns about the pandemic. There are no anxieties connected to the pandemic, loneliness, etc. You're assuming that some of them might be splitting, repressing? I think some of them are splitting, some of them are moralizing or intellectualizing. And of course, as we know, at the same time the pandemic is happening, then other social unrest began to happen in the United States connected to racism. Mm -hmm. So that began to show up in sessions. Yeah, But I still found quite intriguing that for some patients, the pandemic, it never appeared. So I began to ponder out loud at some points, you know, that 
we were in, in a pandemic that the person is in their apartment and I wonder how the person is feeling about that. As if you would need to remind people that maybe some of their current issues might be related to the social frame they exist in. And it raises a lot of questions for me because someone may say that then I am focusing too much on reality, quote unquote, instead of the internal world of the patient. But it makes me ponder in what ways the patient is navigating the external reality, what's happening inside them that the pandemic is kind of an invisible presence. Yeah. But uh, I have to say that this is a, only a small percentage of my patients. Most of them, even if they came after we began uh, working remotely and those who have been with me for years, most of them would talk about the pandemic, how they feel, how they navigate the discomfort of not knowing what will happen during the next few months. Yeah, I agree with you. There are some situations in which people I'm working with don't seem to be able to, or maybe I'm in the wrong, but don't seem to be able to take into consideration that some of their issues may be amplified by uh, the current situation and mm -hmm. how, especially in couples and uh, couples mm -hmm. with children, how things can become a lot more heated. And it has to do partially, not only, but probably partially with the fact that the, the social structure that was containing them is now dislocated, mm -hmm. maybe less than when the lockdown started, but still. A few moments ago, you mentioned also time, the other variable. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that in relation to going to the office or, and then leaving the office and it feels like time stopped. Internally, that was my experience. When I began to work remotely, I experienced every single session as moving slowly, very, very slowly, as if time was flowing so slowly that we were having sessions of two hours, mm -hmm. when in fact it was the usual 45 minutes. Yeah, That has changed throughout this month, but that's my inner experience of time. So I guess in a way I'm beginning to be more comfortable with the reality as it is that we are working remotely, the treatment is moving forward. Perhaps my fear, my concern was that the treatments would somehow stall and that might be the case for some patients, but not for all. Did your frame evolve? Could you talk about what your patients see and how did you think about that? Initially, I would put behind my chair a divider and my patients would see only me and my chair. I stand at a certain distance from the camera so that they can see almost from my waist up. I did that on purpose. I didn't want to be a talking head, as people say, you know, they, they only see the faces. Mm -hmm. It's something that, in fact, my patients have mentioned, that they are tired of looking at squares, like in Zoom, and seeing only talking heads. So now, as time progressed, I realized that I'm not going back to the office anytime soon. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I changed the divider. I opened the space behind my chair. Now my patients can see some of my bookcases. There are some framed pictures on the walls, but they cannot see what the 
pictures are. Now, as we know, sometimes patients don't see something that is right there. And only a couple of individuals have mentioned that I changed the setting. Others didn't realize that something is different in the setting of my office, home office. Did you think about what you wanted to express or why you wanted to show, to display certain things? No, I thought more about how practical it would be for me with the limited space I have in the home office. I see. And of course, when patients ask, it says something about what they experience internally about me and about how I conduct myself in the office. Yeah. I think I, I took a different path than yours. At first, I ha only had a blank wall behind me. Uh -huh. Then some of my patients made some comments about how maybe I, I'm going to summarize it, but like how depressing it looked. Mm. And I have very little options where I live in terms of how I can set up my camera without displaying my uh, intimacy. Mm -hmm. So the only way I found was to display the bamboo <laughs> yes. that I took back from the office. It's in the frame now. So at least it's something alive. I thought about putting a, a shelf and books, but then I realized that it, the office I'm in is too small so that it would look too crowded. Mm -hmm. I wanted to show nothing of my apartment. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that I know that in your private office, you have bookshelves and yep. many, many of your books. And in my office, I didn't have bookshelves. Yeah. I had a few books there. And now so it's the other way around. has shifted here. <laughs> <laughs> well, my books were expelled from my apartment at some point in my life. Oh. Someone near me <laughs> forced me to expel them into my office. So there's no room for my books in the apartment. Did some of your patients change their frame? Yeah, it's been quite a challenge mm -hmm. because... From my perspective, deviations from the frame say something about what's going on between me and the patient and the patient and me and what's going on in my inner world and, and so on and mm -hmm. so forth. Now, some of my patients, because of privacy issues, are having the sessions in their cars. Yeah, I have that too. Well, it's New York City. They have very small apartments. The partners or the, the family is there. They don't feel that they can be open and talk without censoring themselves. And some of them have found that the car is an excellent office room mm -hmm. from which they can have their sessions. But I would say most of them, they're in their apartments or their places where they live. And if they are using video conference, there has been moments when they show me their apartments. They want me to know oh. what they have in their apartments. They show me their pets. And how was it for you? There are two things going on here. One is that this is not the usual way we work. Or this is not the usual way I work. I never enter the real space of my patients. I get to know their spaces through their word and the images they bring. Mm -hmm. So this becomes so concrete. So it makes me ponder how to do analysis you know, in terms of using my own countertransference. It's a little bit more difficult for me. I have to say. Of course, we always explore how does it feel to allow me into their world. And I think the sense I get is that it's a pandemic kind of response for the patients. And therefore, everything has changed, including how they talk to me and how they connect to me. Yeah. 
In terms of remote sessions, what happens with the frame there for you? I do videos and phone. As I mentioned before, with some patients, it didn't change anything because I, I have some patients who are either in France or are um, outside of New York. I've been working with them through video conference for a while. So that didn't really change. I was surprised, actually, to not be so disturbed by the change of frame for my patients. Mm -hmm. I was expecting to not know what to do or to be distracted by the intimacy that would have to be displayed through a video conference with all of my patients. Mm -hmm. It is different, certainly, than having people in your office. And I actually wonder more about how my patients are able to get in the groove, but they seem to be able to get in the groove of the sessions every time. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I wasn't really bothered by them changing their frame, meaning having session in one room one day, having session mm -hmm. in another room another week, yes. et cetera. Actually, I took it, in, I think, maybe in a different way than you expressed by the fact that to me, it was like, oh, that is what they meant. Uh -huh. And this, I think, helps me get a better sense of my patients' interactions with the world. Mm -hmm. I feel like one of the big difficulty when you are working with patients and also one of the tools we use is that we are mostly connected to their inner world. Yes. And so, for example, when the patient explains to you an interaction, you only know what the patient went through. Yes. And in your interventions or interpretations, you have to make sure that you only address that. And sometimes it's interesting to keep in mind, or maybe all the time, it's interesting, I think, to keep in mind that this is not what might have happened and that the perception that people might have around them of what happened might be completely different. And so when I see their environment that they mentioned before, then it gives me, I think, a little sense of the gap between what they mean and what I would mean. Mm -hmm. I think it helps me understand them, to put it very simply. The change in the frame, I try not to think too much about the gap between what I think is their inner world and what I see. I still want to explore, for example, what does it mean to my patient to show me the cat? What is the patient trying to stir up in me? What is the patient trying to do in that moment when they show me this is the window? I still try to understand what they are trying to achieve when they communicate about the concrete and tangible setting in their apartments or cars or whatever they are. I agree with you. I think you can do both. You can do both, but there's something that really bothers me. Mm -hmm. But it's not my patient's fault and it's not my fault. It's when there's a lag in the internet. Oh, yeah. It really annoys me. In that moment, I think, what am I losing here when my patient is opening their mouth and I don't hear anything or the words go in one direction and the image goes in a different direction. Yeah. And some of my patients do the talking head thing, meaning they are very close to the camera. I don't see anything else beyond their faces. Mm -hmm. You know, I cringe when it happens. It's something that makes me feel that we have lost something by moving to remote. I agree with you. That's what we don't want to think about when we are mm -hmm. doing remote. 
mm-hmm. all the glitches and all technical issues that we don't get when we are face to face in an office. I've had situations where a patient does something that's not working with the sound and the patient calls me, but the patient wants to see me. So we are in the video conference seeing each other with phones. I see. Also for the sound. And I know it's not the patient's fault. It's not my fault. It's the systems, the networks are overloaded. And this is it. We need to navigate this situation. Going back to what you make of what our patients show us Mm -hmm. on their video, aren't you concerned that you might fall into, I would say, a trap of interpretations? But I don't interpret. No, but for you, like to uh, uh-huh. over, to overfocus on what could that mean, you know, or what could this mean, what could that mean, etc. Yes, that could be the limitation of my technique. Mm-hmm. But I don't interpret unless I find it's appropriate. But yes, I'm pondering a lot. What is the unconscious communication? That's part of how I work. But you feel it, like you're seeing your patient, and you actually in your head those questions pop up even if you don't express it verbally? That's an interesting question. I don't think they pop up immediately. I don't think so. I try to be fully present in the here and now, but I know that after sessions, sometimes those moments pop up in my mind. Mm-hmm. It happens in the session, of course, if a patient asks me something about their pet mm-hmm. or when a patient is crying and the pet comes nearby to comfort the patient. That's quite fascinating. So what's my role here as this is happening? I don't interpret. I just say, well, it seems that your pet knows you very well. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Did you move a patient to the couch or did you move a patient from video to audio or the other way around since the pandemic happened? Those who were on the couch have moved out of the couch, clearly. Mm-hmm. I know because we are seeing each other. Now, I have expressed that if they would like to do sound without video, that would be not the equivalent of the couch. But still closer. The equivalent of the couch would be that the person turns around and does not face me. Even if we're using video, that would be the equivalent. Yeah, but technically they would need a mic and they would need a speaker behind yeah, exactly. them. So the whole thing becomes about if we have the technology and I am not going there. We explore how it feels to move from one thing to the other, to face me. We talk about that and we move along. At this point in my practice, I don't overemphasize the use of the couch. What I wanted to know more specifically is, did you move a patient's frame? Did you have the experience of having someone who told you that they wanted to maybe move from video to audio, that they wanted to lie down while they were talking to you? Yes, that happened during the pandemic. So the most common example is moving from video to phone. Okay. So the patient feels that the video does not work for them. And so we move to phone. There have been a couple of cases that the phone was not working for the patient. The video was not working for the patient. And so we agreed to terminate. Oh, terminate? It was a pause, but we're on pause until when? It's not that the patient could say, you know, I'll pause now and I'll come back in two months. Mm-hmm. Because no one has an idea when we are coming back, quote unquote. Yeah, yeah. In my mind, we have terminated. They could resume if they want, but I don't see when. 
Yeah, I didn't have any patient who wanted to change the frame since the pandemic happened, but I did suggest the patients who were laying on the couch to uh, go on with the phone only and those who were face-to-face to uh, do videos. For some of the patients and the example I gave of these two patients who left, they left with a lot of frustration. You know, that's when reality hits the fantasy and the, the balloon explodes because they wanted to stay connected, but they wanted to be in the office with me. So it's quite a powerful driving force because I was not able to offer that. My hunch is that there might be some aggression there, of course, but I think that aggression of terminating the therapy was more connected to the frustration they were experiencing. Do you get any sense of what was missing in telehealth compared to working directly with your patient in the office that actually triggered that reaction for those? Those who terminated what they expressed and what we explored is that they needed to see me physically. Why? Do you get a sense of that? That's when things got a little bit difficult to explore because we were trying to explore at the same time that they were feeling terribly uncomfortable. Yeah. I realized that we were not going to get to the bottom of this. So they are saying, I'm uncomfortable. I want to see you in the office. I'm saying that's not possible. Why do you need to see me in the office? But it's difficult for me to talk like this. So it was a circular argument. Mm. You know, at some point we had to let go. It was the patients who decided not to continue when I had to move my office to my apartment. I wondered why some were completely adamant that they would not come back in such a frame and most were okay to adapt to this different frame. And well, I was wondering if something you're saying, like something about aggression, mm -hmm. but maybe toward us, but not necessarily only, but maybe actually more something more an expression of violence against everybody, nobody, against fate, against uh, bad luck, against the pandemic, against COVID. This idea that they can't agree because they're so angry against yeah, reality, this aspect of reality that yes. they can't have this specific way to connect with us. They couldn't. And, and I agree that there's an aggression. There was also the sense that they were trying to protect the relationship with me by emphasizing this is not about you. I know that you cannot see me in the office, they would say. I know that. But knowing something and experiencing something else, that's what we do in analysis. I think it's important to keep those moments or those patients really in mind because mm -hmm. they are expressing the need that some people might have for the nourishing part of being in office. And that leads us to another point is that everybody, almost everybody, I think now in the US at least, is practicing uh, through telehealth. Yes. For some people, it's a discovery that it's possible to do so. Mm -hmm. I think that sometimes there might be a desire in the discourse to move even forward and be like, so what's the point to be in an office? It's working with so many people. Why would we want to come back? We don't have any commute. We might uh, save a lot of money in terms of rental. And mm -hmm. But those people who couldn't stand not being in the office are a reminder that those who could tolerate changing the frame were probably also giving up on something, but they could tolerate giving up on that. 
But there is something in the physical presence that is meaningful in terms of treatment. The physical presence, it's about the listening to my voice as it is and not as it's filtered through microphone. Not just that. You don't show only your face. You show half of your body. Yes. But people who go in session, they see all of us. Correct. There's also a physical frame. They are contained by walls. And this is our walls, you know, and they have to walk to the office. Yes. And actually at the beginning with some of my patients, I told them like that most likely the therapeutic dynamic for them starts even before they enter the office. I agree. They get in the groove mm -hmm. on their way there. And so I told them that it would be interesting, if possible, to actually get a little bit ready 20 minutes, 10 minutes before and not just move from one activity to the other, like we jump from one place mm -hmm. to another. So I want to keep in mind how those things that we take for granted when we have an office, that we do lose them when we move online. Yeah, the sound, the gaze, the movement, the whole body, the opening the door for the patient to come in so on and so forth yeah in my case for example i would always want the session comes to an end i stand up and i open the door for the patient mm -hmm. to exit so i don't do that i throw them out of the video conference room i know because you have to click a button that says end session for <laughs> i feel like there's something more violent in mm -hmm. ending a video conference or phone call mm -hmm. than leaving a session in the office mm -hmm. Because you just click, poof, I guess you just disappear from there. You disappear. And how the person enters the office is, you know, I would get out, I would look at the person in the waiting room, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm waiting there for the person as the person comes in, and none of that is happening. I heard a French psychoanalyst saying that she would have a few minutes on Skype with a patient, and then they would turn off the Skype and do phone. The reason behind that is that she wanted to bring the person in as they would do that in the office, meaning I see you, you see me, and then you lie down on the couch and we turn off the Skype and we hear each other. I think it misses the point that if someone is lying on the couch, the physical presence is there. You know, it's not only the voice. And the voice and the frame, the walls, um, items in the room. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on how it is for you to work from home? How does it feel? How do I do it? Uh, how does it feel? The same experience that my patients have, I also have. It is that different areas of my life are blending together mm -hmm. and everything is happening here. And how is it for you? For me, it's exhausting. Yeah. It makes me feel tired. Certainly, I'm working more hours. That's true. Mm -hmm. But it's also that there's not much else. When I'm in the office in the city, I stand up, I get out of the office, I can see you, we sometimes talk, yeah. and other colleagues, we go to the kitchen and we talk or we prepare coffee or I just sit in my office and read or I see my patients. And then at some point during the day, I close the office and I come home and it's a different space and I can transition from one to the other. My personal life, my family life, my professional life, my own analysis is happening in the same house. Everything is here. And get to a point that you just want to expand yourself and you cannot do it. I see what you mean. I, I feel somewhat similar. And I feel torn between how convenient it is not to have to take the subway 
Oh, for yes. instance, but also how good it can feel to be in a specific place for you to work in. And as you said, like we were in adjacent offices, so it's always nice, you know, when in between sessions or during the lunch break to just chat, say something. Being at home all the time is exhausting. Mm -hmm. I think it led me to question my desire as an analyst. I'm trying not to use this term in a Lacanian way, really like a desire, like the energy that you use, or the drive, we could say the drive towards um, things that you're doing. But I feel like working home, and unlike you, I'm actually working fewer hours than I used to. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's actually a lot more difficult. I'm also wondering if it has to do with the screen and how through the screen and through being home, we accumulate constraints that cut off the libidinal experience of mm -hmm. our work. Now I'm really into thinking that the experience of having the body of your patient in mm -hmm. the same room as you, there's something libidinal that we don't get to have because we're in the screen and because we're home yeah it's not as much a place for us to be available to this aspect of the relationship with our patients and i find that it actually has consequences in sessions now i can feel how hard it is for me to stay focused yeah I agree. I experience the same. I have to invest more energy that I used to do in the office. Well, we were fed and the patients were feeding on us too. Yeah. We were fed by the physical presence of them. Mm -hmm. Remote sessions feel often more like supporting sessions than really analytical sessions. Mm -hmm. I have experienced something similar. And it's, you know, it's something that I keep pondering why I have this, I don't think it's an urgency, but that's a word that's coming to mind. Mm -hmm. The urgency to support the patient because somehow, you know, we are all living together through this pandemic. I have had patients who have lost parents or relatives or friends to COVID. In those moments, I don't try to explore the inner world. It's not what I sense. It's appropriate. So that's the moment when, you know, I, I can say I'm, I'm terribly sorry. I'm terribly sorry for your loss. I think you're absolutely right. The fact that we are all experiencing the situation with the COVID, we analyze less because of the reality of COVID and how mm -hmm. we also might feel impacted and how uh, you have mm -hmm. to leave time to analyze it. You can't just analyze right away when someone is mourning or someone is experiencing mm -hmm. uh, uh, heavy stress. And not having the body of your patients in the same room actually closes doors, closes mm -hmm. opportunities to interpret, closes some reading, at least for me, some ability to read, this, read the room, as we say in English. It raises a lot of questions for me. Does psychoanalysis change in times of pandemic? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to do the analysis of a transference and resistance and, and defenses and so on and so forth, the fantasy interpretation of unconscious meaning, da, 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 all of that? What does it mean to do that in times of COVID? Or perhaps the question you're asking is, what does it mean to do that remotely? Yeah. How do we do this remotely? And could it be possible that we are too immersed in the same reality of our patients that we cannot make a distance from that reality? I don't know. How do we make a distance to do 
the analysis of what's happening in the transference, for example. Mm -hmm. Because we are immersed in a reality, both the patient and us, the same reality. Yeah. I think you're pointing out the structural difficulty we're facing now. A patient who comes to my office needs to make a conscious decision of finishing whatever they are doing, standing up, taking the subway or walking to my office, ring the bell, be in the waiting area. All of that is a transition towards the psychoanalytic room where we explore then the inner world. But my patients are not doing that. I am not doing that. I'm not going to the office, quote unquote. We are all immersed in this reality of a pandemic that keeps us connected to Zoom or any other video conference platform. It almost feels like the asymmetry of the relationship diminishes. Also, in that kind of ideas, I was also wondering if uh, maybe it's harder for us to keep a professional stand, partially because also we have so few social outlets available now. Mm -hmm. And our patients, for some time, they were almost the only person we were allowed to talk to. Yeah, You didn't have all the co-workers, you didn't have uh, people in the street that you see that distract you, that also feed you in some ways. Yeah. No, you only had your patient. And I think that's um, an easy way to become more social within the therapy, to become less available to analysis. It raises a lot of questions for me in terms of the field, the profession. Like what? Is this temporary or are we moving in this direction? How do we come back to a frame that allows us to do the psychoanalytic work? It's a rhetorical question. I don't think there is an answer. Yes. <laughs> Certainly, once the vaccine is available and people can go back to an office without the risk of uh, spreading or getting uh, COVID, things will start to change a little bit. But I think that the experience we all shared, especially with the patients we had during the pandemic, maybe not with the patients we will have after, I think that will probably last for quite a while. For quite a while, yes. I don't see how we could move away personally or professionally from that within the treatment. We were together when it happened. We can't then go back to analyzing it like we would in an analysis. So does that mean that we yeah. should advise our current patients when the pandemic is over to go see someone else? Eventually, maybe. We went through that together and it's going to be very difficult for us to take a stance, to have this neutrality that we need to create this space that we need to create for them to think. I, I don't know. The other side of the coin is that there is a possibility that the pandemic has also allowed us to create a therapeutic alliance that is stronger because we've been together through this. I want to believe that I'll be able to continue to assume a psychoanalytic stance. But wanting to believe doesn't mean it can happen. You know, it's a fantasy. Cer certainly, I want to believe means it's a fantasy, clearly. So it says something about me. And perhaps what it says about me is that I don't want to lose the connection to my patients. I mean, we care for them, right? One patient raised that in a way that was a question. He said, will I see you again? That was a question. Yeah. And we were seeing each other. Mm -hmm. But it's not the same thing that he's referring to. We were on the video conference, so he, the patient was seeing me. Well, 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 no, Edgar. Edgar, he was not seeing you. He was seeing an image of you. Yes, correct, because I agree. Yes, I think that's the dread. 
then it goes to technical points, but they don't listen to us directly. I agree. They listen to us through the mic, through the treatment of the mm -hmm. software, through the treatment of their own headphone or speakers. Mm -hmm. They see us through a screen that is mediated by both webcams and treatment of the screen by the operative system. Mm -hmm. And the software we're using, the treatment of the image is going to be different. Mm -hmm. So it's an image. And in some way, it's, I mean, it's, I'm stating the obvious, but an image is flat. The image is flat. And some people might be hypersensitive to that. It might be more difficult for them to by themselves compensate this lack. Mm -hmm. And we're going back to why some people left and some, some people couldn't stand uh, moving to telehealth. Mm -hmm. Like they need the physical presence to reassure them of your existence and probably of their own. Probably not consciously. It's probably a feeling, an archaic feeling that they have. Again, there is unconscious meaning to the work we do. And even when we are in the office, the patient is not seeing me. Nobody sees you in 3D. Yes, but it's mediated by the transference. Yes. We have another layer on top of the transference. Here. And not just one layer. Many. And many, like yeah, the, the, the ones many that you layers for, for the for the picture and many layers for the sound. Yeah, I actually notice that within myself when I listen to patients because I I listen to them with my headphone and I I invested a, a long time ago in a noise reduction headphone because mm -hmm. I take the subway in New York and uh, I want to uh, able to hear my patients for as long as I can. Uh, <laughs> and the subway in New York is trying to kill your ears. It's yes. a sight. <laughs> so anyway, I noticed how now I hear their voices in a different way. Mm -hmm. Because in the office, even if the office is quiet, even if the office is not that big, you still have a distance. But now they're actually really speaking in your ears, mm -hmm. right there. Yeah. Also, there's compression in the sound. I mean, mm -hmm. some people might not be uh, sensitive to that directly, but I am. And it makes me ponder, as you say, like, what is the connection we're having now with those patients? Not saying that there's none. I want to be clear about that. I'm not uh, throwing telehealth in the garbage at all. No. But no, I really no. want to emphasize that it is different in ways that are hard to articulate, even hard to understand and to experience. But we do experience them. Yeah. And we have never been trained to do this. I don't remember people actually thinking about Thinking that. about it. Yeah. I don't remember having my professors back in France like mm -hmm. uh, doing theses about uh, telehealth. <laughs> we don't look at our patients anymore. Mm -hmm. We, I mean, we look at them, but they don't see us looking at them. No, the gaze is blurred, so yeah. to speak. If we look at the camera, we mm -hmm. can't see them. Correct. What is it that is looking at us? Well, can you imagine how a person who has strong paranoid ideations can feel having remote sessions? You don't need to be paranoid. To think no, that. no, no, but I'm saying <laughs> but yeah. who has strong power. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, reality is that these systems can be oh, it can manipulated be in yeah. so many different ways, you know. Even if it's APA compliant, the information still goes through tubes and those tubes can be intercepted. Yeah. Like it, uh, it raises questions for, for everybody.
So we talked about people who actually couldn't stand being in therapy with you uh, remotely. Did, did you experience people you felt that they actually benefited from the confinement and the COVID situation? Yes, and it's connected to the increasing frequency in this case. Patients who wanted to try higher frequency, but it was not possible because they didn't have enough time to take the subway, get into my office, going back to work and so on and so forth. Now they are doing three times a week. So it has helped those who were curious about increased frequency. And it seems that it's working for them. So in that sense, they benefited from doing this remotely. And some of them have, you know, expressed what would happen when we go back to the office, how this will impact the frequency and the way we're working right now. Certainly some patients who were coming multiple times a week expressed that it was easier. Also, again, more generally, did you experience having, do you have patients who actually felt better during the confinement? Yes, but I think it was a progression that had already begun before the COVID. I have a few patients who actually mm -hmm. felt like that. And it was very interesting to me to see the, how some of my patients were felt terrible because of the confinement and everything they could not have access to anymore and how some other patients felt like this is and to put it very in very simple terms what is happening outside finally current with what's yeah. happening inside inside exactly so the chaos outside now equals or it's worse than the chaos inside yeah. and they felt better Yeah, I also have some people who felt better not to have all the things that my other patients were missing. Thank God there's nobody in the streets. Thank God I'm not asked to go shopping for this, go shopping for that. Mm -hmm. I, some people were really relieved by a society that went slowlier. It goes to what we uh, will say eventually, we'll talk about eventually in the podcast about this around the social, like how mental health is heavily connected to the society we live in and how the society functions. Yeah. Whether or not the way you function is adapted to the way the society functions around you. And maybe to conclude, how was it for you when we moved from the society being pretty much shut down to things starting to reopen? How was it with your patient? Did you feel a difference? I experienced with many of them a desire to go out. Everybody says, oh, who knows when we are back? But it's good that at least we can get out of the apartment and go and buy something or watch the ocean or whatever it is that they do. It's easier now than in March or April. Yeah. I had some patients with whom it was a similar experience, but also I had patients who expressed a lot of anxiety when things started to reopen. Mm -hmm. I could summarize it through when everything was closed, at least it was clear. Yes. You stay home as much as possible. You stay six feet away from people. You wear your mask and you don't do anything. Mm -hmm. And then things started to reopen. So Are you supposed to go to the restaurant? Are you supposed to see your friend? Are you supposed to do this, mm -hmm. this, to do that? It created a lot of anxiety for some of my patients. Now, I think this might be a generational thing because the patients I have who are 50 plus, all of them are experiencing the anxiety that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But those who are below 35 are finally seeing the sun and the ocean <laughs> and... <laughs> <laughs>
guess this is it for today. Thank you for listening to discussions on psychoanalysis. Well, thank you. If you like the podcast, feel free to give us five stars on iTunes. Feel free to subscribe to the group discussion on Facebook or to our Twitter account or SoundCloud account. You can share your thoughts and questions and comments with us through email or on our Facebook page. Our email is discussions on psychoanalysis at pm.me. And we will see you soon for a series of podcasts on the social. And after a pressure from my peers, we will start this series with a podcast on race and racism. See you soon. Until then, this is Edgar Danielson. This is Gruar Pierre. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.